Welcome to the first ever episode of Media Hotline, a new podcast about brands and big box media. My name is Danica Lowe, and for the past 20 years, I have been a journalist, writer, editor, and digital director at some of the biggest media companies in the United States. I've worked at brands including Food & Wine, Glamour, Epicurious, WWD, The New York Post, at a handful of startups, and I also spent a couple of years abroad as the chief content officer at Tatler Asia, where I worked across eight markets in the region. Now, I run a consulting company where I help brands and corporations with their marketing, communications, and storytelling strategies. I wanted to start this podcast because a few weeks ago, I resigned from what I think might be the last legacy media gig of my career, although I guess never say never. And over the past 20 years, as I've become both real life friends and professional friends with a lot of my colleagues across the media spectrum, anywhere from editors and publishers to media buyers and publicists and marketers and people on the sales side, sales directors, I've realized that every sector of the industry is weirdly siloed and isolated and no one really seems to know what anyone else is doing, much less how the media industry really functions as a whole. And it's not just different sectors of the industry. On the editorial side alone, there are so many silos, especially in between print and digital. A lot of these are just leftover habits from previous generations. For example, in 2023, there are still so many massive media companies that consider themselves to be digital first, who are hiring super senior editorial staffers who to this day refuse to log in to the CMS. I can't believe that's still happening, but it really is. So I'm starting a podcast, this one, Media Hotline, to talk about a broad range of topics affecting legacy big box media, the people who work in it and around it, and especially brands and corporations who want to engage with legacy media. After consulting with all types of brands over the past two years, it's become obvious there's a lot about legacy media that's still shrouded in mystery, that still seems totally opaque, to publicists, marketers, and brands trying to make headway in the space. This podcast will hopefully help demystify it a little bit. In this first episode, I'm going to be answering some questions submitted to me by brand marketers and publicists. If you'd like to submit a question, you can DM me on Instagram at Danica Lowe. If your question is answered on the podcast, I will make every effort to protect your anonymity. Question one in this first ever episode of Media Hotline is one of the most popular questions that honestly my publicist friends have been asking me for 20 years. It comes from a publicist in the lifestyle space. She asked me, why is it so hard for journalists to answer emails? Well, there are many reasons. Let's start with the most basic reasons. Probably the most common reason that editors and writers don't answer every PR email we receive is that honestly, the volume of emails that we receive is just so overwhelming. It's almost impossible to answer every email you receive, especially if you've been on staff somewhere for a very long time and your email is in the public domain. At the longest job I ever held, which was seven years, at the end, because I'd been at that job for so long and my email hadn't changed, I was probably receiving between 400 and 600 emails on any given day. This would include everything from mass blast 
product pitches to news emails to press releases to dressing credits because I was working in fashion at the time. And then, of course, there were lots of individually tailored pitches that would get lost in the fray. Something to keep in mind when you're waiting for an editor or writer or journalist to respond to an email is that with the state of media the way that it is, constantly shrinking, the number of brands and publicists probably vastly outnumbers the number of journalists, writers, and editors at established and legacy media publications now. Some other simple reasons your email may be going unanswered is that your email just might be in the spam box. Depending on what platform journalists use, sometimes inbox filters can be really, really strict. And if you've sent a lot of mass blasts in the past where people who've received it have marked it as spam, there's a higher chance that platforms such as Gmail will automatically filter all email sent from particular email addresses to the spam folder. Other simple reasons your email may go unanswered is that the email is not relevant to the writer or editor's beat or area of coverage. I know that now, almost 10 years after I left fashion media, I still get fashion credit pitches. I still get lip gloss launch press releases. And sometimes it's just not worth opening up that opportunity for a back and forth email exchange. I will once in a while reply to things saying this is not my area of coverage, but more often than not, that comes back with, um, well, can you place it somewhere or can you pitch it somewhere for me? And it's just, it's frustrating. So I just tend not to engage with something if it has nothing to do with anything I've written about recently. One other simple reason why a journalist or writer may not answer your email right off the bat or ever is because they can tell that it's part of a mass blast. I'll oftentimes get emails addressed to not me. It would say, dear Scott, dear James, and that's not me. I also often get emails asking me to consider things for coverage for publications I've never written for. So sometimes when you can tell that, an, that a pitch was either not personalized or you weren't even taken into account when being sent a mass email, there doesn't seem to be very much of a point in replying. And also it can be awkward to point out someone's mistake that this is not addressed to me and this is not a publication I write for. So it's easier just to let it go. More often than not, a journalist, writer, or editor may not be replying to emails because they are probably not the ultimate decision maker on what to cover. This is especially true when it comes to freelancers, people who are not on staff at publications, because when a publicist is pitching a freelancer, they are really in turn asking the freelancer to turn around leverage their relationship with publications to try to get the story into a publication. So depending on what the writer or editor is working on at that given moment, what their priorities are, how easy it is for them to place a story, how much space there is for a story, and how much time a story will take. If a writer has a list of 10 interesting short form or two longer form ideas they may want to work on in the next couple of days or in the next week or so, prioritizing story order may not be up to them. And a lot of times it may not even be up to the editor-in-chief. It could all come down to a publication's short-term and long-term traffic goals, revenue goals, and coverage goals. So I would say that if you're a publicist and you're having trouble getting your emails answered, TLDR, don't take it personally. The reason your email is going unanswered is probably because of logistics, hierarchy, or just 
circumstance. It's actually extremely rare that a journalist or editor is maliciously or intentionally icing you out. And off the top of my head, there's only one publicist that I will not answer emails from and I refuse to work with. But this is also a publicist who has called me fat to my face, told me that my front cover Wall Street Journal story idea was stupid and then lied to me about a project one of her clients was launching. So it takes a lot. The second question I'm going to answer on this episode comes from a lead publicist in-house at a major national brand. This person asks, does affiliate and paid media investment level dictate earned media decision making? The short answer, yes, but there is a lot of gray area. So let's talk through some of these scenarios. Let's start with affiliate. So these days, e-commerce division KPIs are often set by both editorial leadership and digital editorial growth leads with a strong dotted line to the revenue division of the publishing company. This was previously unheard of in editorial, but after BuzzFeed first came on the scene in 2006 and completely changed the advertising game with its branded native sponsored content model, rather than banner and display ads, the dollar value of editorial has increasingly become quantifiable over the past 17 years. It might be helpful to think a little bit more about programmatic editorial digital revenue. So, for example, an old school, old school, an old school digital story, say a news story or a feature story about a thing with no e-commerce slash affiliate links, just telling a story about a thing, no links out, no external sources of revenue, say in the fashion space one page view so one person looking at that page once will probably be worth about one eighth of one cent on a desktop browser so on a computer and then one sixteenth of one cent on a mobile phone or an ipad maybe if the reader has ad blockers on that page view is worth zero in revenue however once you add affiliate links To the story, for example, a story about the best walking shoes, for every person who clicks through that link that's in the story and buys something from the e-commerce site, the publication gets a cut of that sale. And the percentages that publishers can get for each sale range anywhere from 1% on the extremely low end all the way up to I've seen numbers as high as 25%, depending on the deal the publisher cuts with the e-commerce site or the brand. The profits can be incredible. So incredible that I've seen numbers as high as $1.9 million generated by putting one e-commerce story in one newsletter and distributing it in a best practices targeted way to a very specific large mailing list. So this is why if you are a brand, cutting an affiliate e-com deal with a publisher could make it easier for you to get coverage on their website or even in their print edition, because a lot of print stories wind up on the web. And the opportunity for high-performing e-commerce and affiliate stories to bring even more revenue to the publisher is almost 
infinite. <laughs> there are opportunities, for example, in recirculation. Click-throughs from recirculation models like Outbrain used to drive a lot of traffic to quirkier or more authoritative e-com stories, especially during big gifting seasons like winter holidays or Mother's and Father's Day graduation. And depending on the media brand's relationship to Outbrain, whether the media brand is paying into Outbrain or being paid by Outbrain, this is usually dependent on the size of the media company. The more e-commerce stories they produce, the better it could be for them revenue-wise, although there's always resistance from more conservative or old-fashioned senior editorial staff to e-com because a lot of people believe that e-commerce and overt product recommendations hurt a media brand halo. But that's like a whole other talk show. There's also a lot of opportunities for publications to target very specific e-commerce and affiliate stories to very specific segments of their audience through newsletters. This is something I just mentioned earlier. The best audience growth executive I know, who I worked with years ago, one year was able to generate $1.9 million in revenue in one year alone off of one e-commerce article she continued to strategically place in a media company's newsletter week after week after week. There are a lot of ways that e-commerce editors A-B test their stories, rework headlines, photos, and copy for different distribution platforms, including newsletters, social media, videos, and there's potentially huge upside all around. Another benefit of negotiating an affiliate deal with a publisher is that often there will be a separate e-commerce department and editors to pitch to. So depending on how your brand may have performed in editorial e-commerce content click-throughs and sales in the past, editors will weigh the value of time spent producing and publishing an e-commerce story and a lot a lot, a lot goes into putting a big affiliate story together. Editors need to write a keyword researched SEO friendly introduction. They have to edit, resize, upload all the photos with search optimized naming conventions. They have to create all the affiliate links for items. Although there are some companies that have developed automations in their CMSs to convert links, which has allowed media companies like Dot Dash Meredith example to really quickly scale their e-com businesses because it's way less labor intensive to create optimized affiliate links. Now let's talk about paid media investment and how we can pay off in earned media. In some media companies to this day, church state still exists between edit and sales where one is not really supposed to influence the other. The general rule of thumb for print is that Magazines that nominate themselves or have won ASMEs, ASMEs, American Society of Magazine Editor Awards, those magazines tend to be more church state, although no one is pure. Everyone else is a little bit more pay to play. And digital is way muddier because there's always programmatic advertising to fall back on. Although FTC disclosure laws in recent years have tried to make things a little bit cleaner cut. The golden rule of big legacy print brands used to be one to one, one ad page for one editorial credit per issue. Now, this has also gotten incredibly complicated as the media industry has shrunk and as magazines have shrunk. There are way less pages in your favorite fashion magazine now than there used to be 15, 20, 30 years ago. And I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of rumbling among brands that magazines that were running these market pages with tons of tiny images on them, that those credits weren't even counting as a full credit because the pictures and the credits were running too small. 
So even today, a big advertiser may demand off the record a full page of credit for a full page of advertising, which I suspect may be one of the contributing factors behind magazines starting to shoot full looks head to toe, all one brand. We all noticed it starting about 10 years ago. In terms of paid media and enhanced editorial attention, it is also way easier for a brand that advertises with a publication to get editors and writers to attend brand events. Things like brand launches, executive dinners, press trips. If the brand is an advertiser above a certain dollar amount threshold, and in this case it's all relative because the threshold for a Vogue print editor to attend and cover a press trip or a show would be different than, say, the threshold for a pure digital place startup website, for example. And speaking of press trips, which are now not just the purview of high-end legacy media brands, but also massive in the influencer industry... Even media companies that publicly state that they ban their staff writers from attending press trips will turn a blind eye to many of their staff writers who frequently accept press trip invitations. The New York Times famously forbids even freelancers from accepting press trips, but anyone who has ever been on a press trip knows that there's usually at least one regular New York Times freelancer on any big press trip, especially the luxury big ticket trips. And that's it for this first episode of Media Hotline. I hope you found some of the information helpful. And please subscribe, like, and tune in for episode number two, which is just around the corner. Again, if you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast, please feel free to DM me at Danica Lowe. And again, if the question is used on the episode, I will make every effort to keep you anonymous. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time. (laughs) 